0: Folks, we're in part three of our series, Living in Exile, making our way through Jeremiah. What Julie didn't tell you was that the section of Scripture that we're looking at tonight starts in Jeremiah chapter 2 and goes through to verse 3 of chapter 8. So if we were to really take it all, we'd be here to Wednesday week getting through it. So we're going to take it in the next half hour, so uh, 25 minutes, to, to make our way through as best we can to see what's in this section for us to learn. Christoph has done the first two parts for us. The first Sunday, we looked at chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3, and we got the overview of the history. Uh, this particular time in history, what was going on, what was at play? And on that evening, we discovered that the society to which Jeremiah was speaking into was quite like ours today. They were a society who had turned away from God, a society that recognized satisfaction in what the world gave them rather than in what God had for them. Then last week in chapter 1, verses 4 to 19, we got God's view, the big view of the kingdom. God was convincing Jeremiah of, of the sin, not that he needed much convincing, but that he was the man for the job, that there was a job to be done, that these people could have a way to God if only they would listen, and Jeremiah was going to be the man to do it. And from that big level, we went down to a smaller level where God was looking at Jeremiah and we learned a little bit about Jeremiah and who he was and what he's about. Tonight we start in a prophecy or a sermon. What God gave to Jeremiah to speak to the people. So the message from God for Jeremiah to proclaim as the word of God. So let's come and let's ask for God's help as we look at this section this evening. Our Father God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that we have it in our own language. We now ask that you will help us to understand it. This ancient piece of scripture can seem so removed from us because we don't understand everything about it. But we ask that you will help us to understand, that you will give us your learning and instruction so that we can be mature as we desire to follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past number of months, I have been doing battle. Um, I'm coming up my first wedding anniversary, so don't panic. It's not with my wife uh, one year in. But I'm doing battle with a fish pond. Now, if you know where I live in Drive, there's no way we would have a fish pond there. Rather, it's at our home down in Katy where my mum lives. And I've become the handyman about the place as I go and visit. So yesterday... Uh, was part of my battle with our fish pond. Our fish pond is not very big, but it's about four and a half meters deep. In the center of it, it has a fountain, and to the side of it, it has a waterfall. Both the fountain and the waterfall have uh, key purposes in this whole system. Right at the center, deep down in the pond, is a pump. It pumps the water, and then it diverts it in two directions. The first is simple to the fountain, that beautiful piece of concrete that shoots up the water and looks nice and sounds nice and everything like that. The second it sends to the waterfall, but before it comes down the waterfall, it has to go through a system of filtration. It has to go through two barrels, and in those barrels are sponges and stones to get rid of all the debris that's in the water so that whenever it trickles down the waterfall, it's as clean as it can be for being fish water. I'm doing battle because it's not working. My mum phoned me one night to say, it's not working, what do I do? And I said, you're going to have to wait until I come down. But my mother couldn't wait, so she asked a friend to have a look at it. And he looked at it and he got a screwdriver and he got some cutters to cut pipes and everything like that. I went down home and discovered it's great, it's working, the fountain's looking great, it's all working fine, he's done a good job. On closer inspection. The fountain was the only thing that was working. The waterfall had no water coming down it. What he'd done was cut the pipe and just plugged it straight into the fountain. You see, on the first look, it did what it should. It was a magnificent high spouting, higher than we've ever seen, of water coming out the top, but that's because all the force of the pump was pumping it out. But nothing was coming down the waterfall. And so as the weeks have gone on, the water has got browner and browner. And the dirty water is coming up through the fountain rather than going through the filtration system and making it slightly more cleaner. See, the problem is at the pump. Whenever I got down into the water and lifted the pump out, there's only one pipe coming out. There's supposed to be two. The pump is doing what it does, pumping water. But the bit at the very end that diverts it has gone completely. There's a problem. And that's where we meet our story in Jeremiah. See, this is what happened in the time of Jeremiah. Something went wrong. We're going to take a few minutes to look at the history again, just to get into your minds where Jeremiah is coming from at this particular time in history. He lived in the last decade of the reign of Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king on record for the children of Israel. He was a thoroughly bad man Uh, presiding over a totally corrupt government. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem and it was recorded as a dark and evil half century. Jeremiah lived in the last decade of this guy and what Manasseh did was encourage pagan worship. He installed cult prostitutes as shrines throughout the countryside. He imported wizards and sorcerers who enslaved the people into superstitions, making them think what they should believe and manipulating them with their magic. Manasseh could not have done enough evil. His evil extended so much that one day he placed his son on an altar in some black and terrible ritual of witchcraft, and he burned him as an offering, and we read that in 2 Kings 21. You get the picture that Manasseh was truly an evil man, But right in the center of Jerusalem, you had Solomon's temple, that holy place, very simple, empty of any form of God so that the invisible God could be attended to in worship. What it swarmed with magicians and prostitutes. Idols were shaped as beasts and monsters were throughout the sanctuary. Lust and greed were deified Murders were commonplace. One commentator concluded Manasseh's reign as Manasseh dragged the people into a mire far more stinking than anything the world had yet seen. One historian's judgment was blunt. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So this is the culture into which Jeremiah learned to walk, he learned to talk, and he learned to play the first 10 or so years of his life. The 55 years in which Manasseh reigned uh, or had misrule brought uh, about almost the faith to oblivion. I'm sure there were some people who remembered the prophetic messages and the... the, uh, services of worship that they would have had, and the instruction of true worship. I'm sure there were pockets of true believers who kept the faith alive, but yet they felt so afraid to express it because it was against so much of what the king wanted. But in time, Manasseh died, and his son Ammon succeeded him, and he wasn't much better as much as the people were hoping. They were full of evil and sick of it in their society, and they murdered him And after Ammon came the eight-year-old king that many of us are familiar with, Josiah. Josiah brought about the great reform in the society. He got rid of everything. After reading the documents of Deuteronomy that were brought to him and read to him, he understood the way that God had for his people. So he got rid of everything. He got rid of the idols, he got rid of the shrines, he got rid of the spiritual advisors, the magicians and the prostitutes. He renovated and repaired the temple and he prepared the people for the worship of God. Picture it like this. There's a particular park that you enjoy with its grass and its flower beds. You enjoy it one day and you go back the next and it is utterly cleared and you see the the workmen putting down fresh tarmac to make way for a car park. You walk past it and you remember what it used to be like. And over time, some of that loses its, its memory in you. And you keep walking, and if it's not cared for much, you'll start to see little green shoots of grass coming up again through the cracks in the tarmac. And that's what's happening here. Whenever Manasseh came, he he tarred everything, as it were. Everything was dark and everything was black. And when Josiah came, it was as if there was little sprigs of green grass coming up through what was once thought
1: uh, unable to get rid of
0: was now coming Little green shoots of hope, of growth. And so for the people, they followed Josiah's lead. They returned to the temple and they worshipped or truly worshipped, or at least they thought they truly worshipped. When we get to Jeremiah 7, 1 to 29, what is known as the temple speech, the people are all about the temple and the public appearance. But when it comes to living the rest of the week, they haven't changed at all. See, it's like my pond battle. The fountain looks good. It looks pretty and nice, and people admire it. But the filtration is missing. The clean water coming through is missing. And so it is in the time of Jeremiah. People are more concerned about what it looks rather than what the content is. Jeremiah gives us a taste of the religious cliche of the day in chapter four of uh, or verse four of chapter seven. Uh, do have your Bibles open because we're going to be flicking through. Obviously, we can't go through every passage, but uh, page 764 we'll start with, and then we'll move our way backwards and forwards through this little section to get a, a big idea of what is going on Uh, in in this section. So verse 4 gives us the cliche. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This would appear to be the cheer and the praise that the people had. But the Lord recognizes it as deceptive words because verse 11 gives us the insight further down. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? but I have been watching, declares the Lord. See, God has seen and knows what they're up to. What they're basically doing is paying lip service to him. In reality, they haven't changed on the inside as Josiah had led. Rather, they are using the temple as a robber's den. Think about what a robber's den is. It's the place where the robber goes to wait for his next job. The next time he goes out, it's that stop place between One robbing session and the next robbing session. It's the place of security where the robber can feel no one's going to get him. But his intent is to leave and continue doing what he does, which is normally robbing from those who can't afford to be robbed. So the ultimate challenge uh, to these people is their state of feeling secure and safe. Flick over to Jeremiah 5 and verse 12. It's on page 761. And in verse 12, the Lord says, they have lied about the Lord. They said he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. The people feel secure that no matter what they do or how they live, God will never do anything. They're holding true to the Abrahamic Covenant that God would be their God and they would be his people. In their minds, we are living in Jerusalem, the holy city. No one can ever touch us. We're doing and we're being where God is in the temple. And in there, he can see what we do. But as for the rest of the week, well, what he doesn't know, they're in this false security they think that because of what they do, their outward appearance, they will be secure and nothing will come to them by way of punishment. Jerusalem, the holy city, no one could ever touch them. But they have short memories See, God says, wake up. Wake up, people. Flick back to chapter 7. Because God gives a story that will remind the people that how they think they are secure is not so secure at all. Verse 12 to 15. Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. See, the history of Shiloh is this. Shiloh was one of the most famous holy places to the children of Israel. It's located right at the center of the country, and it had been the earliest focus point for worship and consultation in Israel. When Joshua brought the people into the land after their deliverance from Egypt and 40 years of wilderness wandering, Shiloh was where they assembled where they set up the tabernacle, the place where God would be with them, and where they divided up the land among the 12 tribes. The Ark of the Covenant was kept at Shiloh. The prophet Samuel spoke his words of counsel there. Shiloh was a magnificent beginning, and it was a glorious image for these people. But in Jeremiah's time, all that Shiloh was was a few piles of rock in a field of weeds, as anyone who traveled between Galilee to Jerusalem would see. Eugene Peterson comments that Shiloh was the right place. At Shiloh, the right words were spoken. But when the right place no longer launched a walk with God, and when the right words no longer expressed love and faith, Shiloh was destroyed." God is saying through Jeremiah, it can all happen again. You think Jerusalem and the temple are a safe place for you to be? Think again. Just like Shiloh, it will be destroyed because of your unfaithfulness. So this is where we begin our journey, through the contents of chapter 2 through to chapter 7. This is the message that Jeremiah has, and what we're going to do now is take little pieces of, along the way of this prophecy uh, to see how we get to this end point, to see what the people are really like. So what we're going to do, rather than being here to Wednesday week, we're going to look at four things that come out time and time again uh, in this section. I should say that chapter 2 itself, if you were to read chapter 2, by the way, read the whole of chapter 2 through to verse 3 of chapter 8. It is a fascinating uh, insight into what God is going to do uh, with and to his people. But chapter 2 itself is like a sample. It's like, here's what's going to happen. This is the, the detail, uh, the concise detail, and what I'm going to do is fill it out later. So in chapter 2, we get the big picture of what's going to happen. And the four things that come up time and time again are these. Number one, fault with God. Number two, the failure of leadership. Number three, the failure of people and number four, God's restoration. So let's start by looking at fault with God. We need to go right to the very beginning, Jeremiah chapter 2, where Julie read for us on page 756. Because in verse 5, God says this of Jeremiah 2, "'What fault did your ancestors find in me?' that they strayed so far from me. God asks the question, what did I do wrong? What did I ever do to you that you wanted to turn away from me? Again in verse 27, God says, just the page over, they say to Wood, you are my father and to stone you give birth to me. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble they say come and save us. The people in Jeremiah's day were happy enough to ignore God when everything was going well for them or going the way that they wanted it to go. But when it got tough they began to consider him. They would say come and save us so, it was only in those pressured moments of life where they recognized that God could do something. And the likelihood is that they actually didn't fully understand God at all, otherwise, they would have stayed with Him. But in their, in their minds, this was an idea that God can help. Because time and again, they went back to their old ways. God asks in verse 29 why they are bringing charges against him. And then in verse 31, he asks, have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? In other words, has he not provided for them? You see, in these questions, God is challenging the people to recall what he has done for them throughout their history. Rather than God being the one who left them, they left him through their adultery with their false gods And chapter 3 begins with a picture of a man divorcing his wife and going off with another. And this is how Israel has been in their relationship with God. Verse 1 of chapter 3, but you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. So firstly, the first theme that comes through this section time and again, is there a fault with God? God wants to know, what have I done wrong that you have ran so far away from me into the arms of another? Is there genuinely a fault with God? God doesn't think so. Because in this section, he recounts what he has done for his people throughout their story, his story. So, secondly, what about the failure of leadership? There are two sets of charges brought, and the first are to the leaders. In verse 8 of chapter 2, on page 756, God says, The priests did not ask. Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. We see charges again in chapter 6, verse 13, where they are described as greedy for gain and practitioners of deceit. But the greatest charge of all comes um, a few verses earlier in chapter 5. It's chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. And that's on page seven hundred and sixty-two. It says this, verse thirty of chapter five: A horrible and shocking thing has happened in this la- in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. The state of play is that those who have been charged to help God's people haven't been doing a very good job. Rather, they have been more concerned about what's suiting them, what makes them happy, what makes them successful, rather than by genuinely helping these people come to know God, lead them in His truths. The people have been led down a path that has taken them to worship foreign gods It's led down a path that has made a mockery of everything that God has for them, the best that he has for them. If you've been here over the past few years, you will know that time and time again as we come to Scripture, God's best, that's what he has for his people. He never wants less. He wants the best. But time and again, the people rejected God's way, the best way for them. So the fault clearly falls at the leaders having misled the people away from God. But they don't get off so lightly, just in case you think they're going to slip down a path of not being accused. Thirdly, the failure of the people. The leaders are charged, and the people don't get off lightly. Time and again through this passage, more time than the leaders, they are charged the section starts off with God remembering the past. Right at uh, the start uh, of Jeremiah, the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them. That's how God starts this prophecy in chapter 2. Israel, you were my prize. You were my people. And a few verses down in verse 13, God says this is now what it looks like. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. The people have ignored, completely ignored, what was best for them, and they've gone, they've gone on to create their own way, but it is a broken way. W. H. Thompson reflects on this image of a cistern. The best cistern, even those in solid rock, are strangely liable to crack. And if by constant care they are made to hold, Yet the water collected from clay roofs or from morley soil has the color of weak soap suds. The taste of the earth or the stable is full of worms and in the hour of greatest need, it utterly fails. This is a guy who spent time in Palestine and looked at cisterns and this is what he found he's saying that for the people, they've gone for the second best. They've gone for what they think they can create, what they can master. But truth be told, they never could, because the cistern would never hold the water. So rather than going to the spring that was always there, that is God, they satisfied themselves on what they could do and their own efforts. Verse 28 gives Israel a challenge. He God says, "Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah." God challenges the people to say, "Show me your gods and show me if they're worthy. Show me if they are fit for purpose." Because they're not really Because God declares that He is the one true living God. In chapter four and verse twenty-two, God calls his people fools because they do not know him and describe and he describes them as senseless children because they have no understanding. He says this they are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. A damning judgment on the people. All they know is evil. Good is not in them. This is God's judgment on the people. God's judgment on the leaders. And God asking them, where's the fault? What did I ever do wrong? But God, being the merciful and gracious God that he is, brings restoration. He brings hope to these people who time and time again have rejected him. Even the beginning of this section in chapter 3 verses 12 to 13 on page 758, God issues this invitation to the people. He says, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favours to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me. If the people will admit, acknowledge and admit their guilt, then God will receive them. He says, I am here waiting. Will you come? Will you recognise what you have done wrong and will you come to me? because I will receive you. The passage continues from verse uh, 14 to 18, and God continues to bring hope in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, and in 5, verses 18 to 19. And in chapter 6, verse 16, we get a beautiful image, and it's on uh, page 763. It's a wonderful picture of what is required. God says they "'Stand at the crossroads,' and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. God says, look at what I have done for your ancestors. Trust in it. See how you have failed. Come back to me and I will restore you. But that little section, that verse ends with letting us know what God knows he says, no matter if I offer you this, you're not going to take it. You still hunger after what satisfies you in the here and the now. Once again, God says you will ignore me. Possibly the greatest display of love in this section from God is verse 18 of chapter 5, which is one page back on 761. Verse 18, right at the bottom there of chapter 5, this is what it says. Yet, even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. God isn't going to do what the people deserve. The people deserve to be wiped out, but he's not going to do that. Rather, he's going to let them live, but he's going to take away everything that they hold precious. He's going to take them out of Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the temple and they're going to go into exile. And in exile, they will remember the good things of God. And in exile, their hearts will be softened and they will remember the goodness of God of God. They won't be able to rely on the work of their own hands or what they think they are in a position. God is going to break them so that they will truly recognize who he is. So the themes of this section of Jeremiah, fault with God. God questions, what have I done? To deserve this. The answer is God has done nothing to deserve it. God has done more than could ever be imagined to bring these people to himself. There's two charges. One, and this was our second point, the failure of leadership. The leaders have failed. They were more considerate of themselves than they were of the people, but the people didn't get off lightly. They were charged as well for, for enjoying all of this evil. And then, fourthly, God's restoration, where he will bring them back to himself. Because the Abrahamic promise is true. He will be their God, and they will be his people. So let's finish up. Jeremiah's job is to share this message with the people. It wouldn't be the message that you would want to share in the world today. In Jeremiah's time, they weren't going to like it. And even in this section, Jeremiah jumps in and is surprised at what God is revealing to him, chapter 4, verse 10. He is surprised by this oracle. And I think that we can easily identify with this prophecy of Jeremiah's. See, the world is comfortable with its consumer products, lavish lifestyles, and the seemingly unending new idols to keep people from God. There's absolutely no doubt that the current generation need to hear of where this idolatry is leading them. And it would be very good to finish with that because that's nice for us in here to look at God's word and say that's about them out there. That's the message for the world. But maybe we don't actually need to go much further than the walls of this very building. See, the main charge that was brought against the people was that they thought they were untouchable. They thought they were safe and secure because of what they did in the temple. That what was seen in the place of meeting was enough. And that whatever happened in the rest of the week was okay. I'll get on with what I want to do because no one will be checking up on me. See, their security was in how they looked rather than what was the God-driven change in their lives. If we desire to be prophetic into this society as we need to be, if we need to tell society these messages that Jeremiah is teaching us about repentance and about God's grace in restoration, We need to know it working in us. We need to recognize that we mustn't be hypocrites when it comes to challenging this world. We can't go out with one message and yet live another. Where we're calling people to live a seven day week in the glory of God, but yet we're only living one day a week in the glory of God that happens to be on a Sunday. We cannot be hypocrites so that the world can point the finger and say, I don't want anything to do with it because I can see through your falseness. We need to know, as Josiah desired and wanted the people to know, as God says, This is what you need, we need to know that as his disciples, we are fully saved through Jesus Christ. Before we speak to the world, we must know and live it every day that God offers us salvation through Jesus Christ. We must know the joy of sins forgiven, to be a Shiloh where faith is living and breathing, rather than a Shiloh that has lost its way. And what if we have lost the way? What if we're not living seven days a week as we should in the full glory of God? Well, then we need to hear the invitation. The invitation that was issued in Jeremiah that echoes through Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, Jesus gives us the invitation to come to him if you're tired and if you're weary. Lay your burden down with Jesus. Allow him to take you and take his yoke because it's easy and it's light. To be prophetic people in this world, we need to be real. And in reality, we need to accept this invitation of Jesus to find rest in him. We need to recognize that our security is not by being here, It's not by being in any groups or anything that this church would do. Our security must only be in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. Folks, I will continue to do battle with the fish pond. I will continue to get that pump working so that water is going down a waterfall that has been filtered and cleaned so that as it comes out of the fountain, it will look clean rather than dirty. Where's your focus going to be? The security of that fountain looking nice and everyone standing in awe of it? Or is it going to be about the hard work of both? Recognizing that as the water is clean coming through a filtration system that takes time and effort so as it is displayed in flowing clean water, we will know that our security is in Christ. We will know that it is God's power working in us and through us to be what he wants us to be, his disciples. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that as we read Jeremiah, there's so many comparisons to society today. Help us not to look beyond ourselves, to jump over ourselves, to ignore what is going on in us. Help us not to jump and point the finger at society before we've inspected ourselves to see what kind of lives we are living. Help us to be secure in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us to receive that invitation to come and to have rest. Help us to be secure in the only place where we can find security, in the love that you have for us through Jesus Christ. And as we do that, and as we look to the world, as we desire to be prophetic in these times, help us, not as hypocrites, but as truth speakers, to share this message with those around us so that they can enter into the joy of the kingdom as we know that joy and as we know that love. Help us as we do this. And lead us in your ways, because they are the best ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.